Dalton is suave and lethal as Super Agent James Bond in this turbocharged action adventure that pulls him pulls out all the stops for excitement. Armed with a gadget-laden Aston Martin and his license skill, Agent 007 must stop a terrifying weapons conspiracy that may be linked to the Soviet military high command. <laughs> that, by the way, is the official description of the plot. Making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 29th of June, 1987, and opening the USA a whole month later on the 31st of July, Living Daylights is the 15th James Bond film and cost $40 million to make, bringing in $191.2 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Timothy Dalton and directed by John Glenn, vital statistics are romantic interludes between two concerned adults, two martinis, two kills, two Bond James Bonds, one... Back in 1987, Variety said Timothy Dolan, the fourth Bond, registered beautifully in all counts of charm, machismo, sensitivity, and technique. The Living Daylights is abetted by material that's a healthy cut above the series norm of superhero fantasy. So to talk about The Living Daylights, uh, this week we've got Dr. Lisa Funnel, Ben Eslinger, and Mark Edlitz. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Sure. Um, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate dean, award-winning author, and media educator who specializes in gender in James Bond and other action films. I'm Ben Esslinger. I am a uh, video and film editor, and I do a podcast called Central Intelligence Cinema that talks about spy movies. I am Mark Edlitz. I am a non-award-winning author of three books, <laughs> The Many Lives of James Bond, The Lost Adventures of James Bond, and the rarely heard of or read How to Be a Superhero interviews with actors who played superheroes. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's be honest. Your books are amazing, Mark. Okay? <laughs> They're absolutely fantastic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we need to support and, 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 and tell you how awesome you are. It's very Indeed. sweet of you. Thank you. Your book was on my Christmas list, actually. Oh, great. <laughs> did you get it? <laughs> I was going to say, you naughty or nice this year? No, no, I did get it. I did. <laughs> did I make the sale? It's going to be a good uh, podcast. All right, all right. <laughs> So we kick off with the one with, uh, which is what is the motif you could hang your hat in for the film? Um, if you close your eyes, what's the one thing you see or hear about the living daylights? How would you describe this to a casual moviegoer or alien visitor? The living daylights is the one with. Oh, can I go first? I don't want someone yeah. to take mine. <laughs> <laughs> the one with the cello. You stole oh that from the notes. Uh, like that's my favorite one i did not steal it you know how much i love the cello and how much i love snow sequences for me it's just the most to me it's the most iconic movie the iconic movie the most iconic scene of the entire movie and i'm gonna be very bold and say across dalton's tenure of two films it is mm -hmm. when i think about timothy dalton in a bond film i see them in that cello case i see them going down the hill i see Marion Diabo and Timothy Dalton doing some of that work. I've got great still shots <laughs> of the two of them with like wind um, sort of changing the, the their faces and it's very wind blown. And for me, I just love it when they finally go underneath the the border and they they basically say nothing to declare just the cello and that to me is just it sums up the amazingness of this movie and I'm a huge fan of this movie. All right. Uh Ben Ah, Lisa, you stole mine. <laughs> I absolutely agree. It is the one with the cello. Uh, but my second uh, choice would probably be it's the one with Timothy Dalton. Um, 
just because he makes such a strong first appearance and yeah uh he just sort of despite the fact that maybe he wasn't the first choice uh for the new bond <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he just you know grabbed it by the reins and and still made it his and just such a commanding performance that for me yeah. it's it's the one with Dalton Hi Mark it's the one where Bond pops a balloon in anger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love this answer. This is my favorite of the three. <laughs> I have nothing more to add. <laughs> um, is anybody comfortable with popping a balloon? Because it's the it, it, I I kind of like it. Just makes me grimace. There's just the thought of doing it. Um, so how much acting was involved in that? that is true i mean you think about it because you're anticipating it's even like pulling an elastic right like you have this natural reaction and he was probably deep in character because it doesn't even look like he flinches right yeah and kudos to him for not you know like closing his eyes just in the anticipation of a piece of balloon hitting him or something (laughs) well it's great it's great because so many times the the what are called sacrificial lambs are just designed to you can't kill the hero so you, right. you kill the people around right. him and that provides the that that underscores mm-hmm. the danger and this was a nice moment that that was fitting with Dalton that just shows his anger and disgust at this whole dirty business that he's in mm. And I think, you know, adding to your point about the balloon itself, and this was something else, like if I couldn't have, got, if I didn't get the cello, I was going to say death to spies as being this, mm. this overarching plan. Because when you think about it, this is his colleague who has, who has died, but he's working for, you know, the secret service. And then you have all of the double O agents who died in the training sequence in Gibraltar. Like there really is this notion that the double O agents and, and, and British spies in general um, are under attack. And it's in interesting that it's the balloon that says, I'm not going to, you know, put the words out because I can't even say them, uh, but the death to spy words that are on, I, uh, I'm thinking it's a blue balloon, sort of floating around. And, and when you think about it, they're at this, this fair of some sort. Balloons are supposed to be these happy elements. Bond and um, uh, Kara Malovi may have made out or done more on the Ferris wheel. Like there was a whole lot of good feeling stuff going on. And then you see this death. Mm-hmm. And you see Bond take this artifact of joy, right? And the pleasure that he had before and he's lost somebody that he cared about. The two of them had, had their dynamics, but they were finally on the same page. There's that notion of brotherhood that is starting to be built because Bond builds those strong bonds with other men. And so this is the culmination of him not just being angry, but really trying to puncture this entire facade of the death to spies um, plot that, that uh, not Pushkin, Gorgul, Yorgi, there you go, that Yorgi was trying to, to put out as being like this, this, this overarching plot when it doesn't actually exist. And so I think there's something really uh, that, that culminates in that moment of that balloon. There's multiple levels to it. Can I offer an alternative view? Please, is, yes, yes. <laughs> I think him popping that balloon in anger is Bond realizing he fucked up and took his eye off the mission. Ah, oh, that is true as well. Because he got swept away with trying to romance Kara and going down that whole thing, and he he slacked off. He took his eye off it, 
he's blaming himself probably for um, the death of Sa- uh, Saunders, but it's more him being pissed off that he lost track of the mission. I think that's like the next scene. He says, "Yes, I got the message," and I, I think it's Bond realizing that he fucked up more than it is you- more than it is mourning the death of Saunders. Because I have a question about that. Because I mean, I, look, the romance between them is, is there, but I've always questioned. And again, maybe I just haven't watched it clearly enough. Like, was that truly his mission? Because he was so enamored with her in the first place. And he did make decisions. And don't get me wrong, he was right on a couple of them. But it really did feel as though, like, was he trying to develop her into being an asset? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I felt that he was really falling for her the entire time. Um, I think it was a bit of both. Yeah. Okay. I think it it suited the mission to do it. But I think he genuinely was attracted to her too right and okay. i think that's where he got swept away in it and that's where he had that yeah. moment of frustration it's like damn it i forgot what i was supposed to be doing and i think it's a testament again when you go back to this notion of of this is sort of dalton as a really good actor and dalton as bond i believed he got swept away i could see it on his face i could feel it in his interactions with Kara. like he was really into her um and that's an important element which is why i was sort of questioning like is this your job or are you just kind of doing this right mm. and that feeds then into your reading that he he took his eye off of 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 the mission and of the goal and 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 now he he learned the lesson the hard way unfortunately at the expense of somebody else yeah the whipping boy <laughs> right all right um bond cocktail so if you break the bond uh cocktail into a formula um these are some common ingredients that people often list teaser titles plot women villains allies bond action locations dialogue and style with a big asterisk um is there one of these ingredients that you feel is somehow unique or particular to this film and why and it could be a positive or a negative I thought that one of the things that I love about this film is it's the most romantic uh, yeah. of, of the bonds. And uh, with the, some, you know, there's this, <laughs> there's a montage of bond at a theme park and you, you buy it. You, you, there's bond yep. on a Ferris wheel. There's bond on a roller coaster. There's bond on a little bumper car. <laughs> Right. Any other actor would look absolutely foolish Mm -hmm. in that scenario, and and it feels just like a nice romantic uh, date date montage that you'd see in another film of two people Mm -hmm. falling in love. Yeah. And I would add to that, if I could, even earlier when he was getting the cello, right? He's trying to get Kara to safety. They're trying to steal away. And she says, no, I need to get the cello. And they actually look like they're a real couple, like a real couple of like, no, leave the cello. No, we're going to go. And then they it cuts to a scene of him just waiting in the car, annoyed. <laughs> With furrowed brow. Yeah, <laughs> getting the cello moment. and then pushing the seat forward or backwards or however it, it works when it's it's a two-door car right. um and then like stuffing it back in and quipping like you should have played the violin or something like that or why couldn't you have played it and just seeing from very early on like that's actually what a relationship is like that, that is the very bond definition of happy wife happy life 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's the reason why I, I really buy into the romance. And I I say this a lot. Like, this is one of the few films where I'm like, I buy it. I buy that he's into her. She starts falling for him. That there's these dynamics between them. That the other films fall short on that level of depth between them. And maybe it has to do with, you know, the subtleties uh, that are not always shown, like simply two people sleeping together and saying they're a couple, that doesn't really encapsulate what a relationship is. You know, relationships, believe it or not, they're more than just sex. And so to see just the relationship dynamics without actually seeing too many suggestions of sexual activity, for me, I found that to be incredibly refreshing in this type of a film where he appreciated her for her artistry, for her heart, for her personality. And you could feel that connection between them on like a deeper fundamental level. So I support that point. What category would you put that? Do you want to put it under Bond on this one? What do you think? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Ben, what would you like to pick? Um, I think I will go with allies actually. Um, and it's sort of a, it's sort of a mixed bag, but I think that for the most part, allies is really interesting in this movie, just because you've got some of the best allies in this movie are not the ones you would necessarily think would be, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the guy that plays Felix in this movie, John Terry is not not a huge fan of the way that they sort of portrayed him or his performance in it. Um, although I think they gave him limited, you know, stuff to, to <laughs> right. they gave him limited stuff to work with. John, so. take the bottle of Jack Daniels out of the cabinet, put it down. All right. And scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but aside from Felix, um, I love, love, love uh, John Rice Davies as mm. Pushkin in, in this. Um, it's such an interesting dynamic between him. You've got two, great actors with you know john rice davies and dalton kind of interacting i just love um how that that sort of dynamic worked as well as art malik um as cameron shaw it's just such a uh he give art malik gives such a great Mm -hmm. interesting nuanced performance um and really adds something to that sort of gives those that group a a little bit more dimension um sort of fleshes out as you know humans because let's face it we're here in in america like not everybody always you know looks at at that side of the world and and looks at it with you know enough of a humanitarian eye and so um it was nice to sort of see see somebody in that role and 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 give that that sort of um idea you know push that forward so much so that pretty much every interview he did when this film came out, the interview was like, so you're playing the baddie. <laughs> like, <Whoa>. oh. <laughs> yeah. But it also ended up with a very unique ending from a geopolitical standpoint, right? Like cars performance. Yeah. And then it's like this interesting blend of people, you know, who have, who are now in this new moment of, I don't know, detente or, or collaboration, um, from various places. And you can see people's reactions to it, but I always found it to be a very interesting image of of these other men these particular men um who are representing such diverse places um varying uh political interests who have mm-hmm. all come on the same page uh because of 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 bond and kara and their interjection into this broader plot 
Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how this film would have played out if, if Gogol, if, you know, Walter Gotel would have been well enough to play Gogol. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it would have been very different. Um, ben, what do you think of um, Caroline Bliss's The New Money Penny? Yeah. I mean, as we're on the topic she, of allies, she, uh, she's, you know, she, <laughs> she adds and subtracts. Um, there is parts of, you know, I'm not crazy about the whole Barry Manilow line, but right. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that they at least included a money penny in, in the film, uh, just cause I'm a fan of the character itself. Um, but, um, maybe not my, favorite <laughs> maybe right. not my favorite portrayal and we did talk about saunders um under the category of allies earlier um, oh saunders yeah Sa- he's it, he whoever performed i i forget the name of the actor who portrays him sweetly i think he <laughs> does such a great job of being annoying and, <laughs> and just be, just being highly unlikable um mm-hmm. and so it is kind of satisfying though that he's sort of has that redemption, you know, yeah. sadly, obviously before he dies, but it's just interesting. Um, it's, I think that works really well though, to, to have a quote unquote ally that isn't right. all that helpful. Right. I, I, I liken it to, um, Ralph Fiennes in Skyfall where Mallory mm. starts off, you know, as, um, almost anti M anti bond. And then by the end of the film, he softens and comes around. Mm-hmm. And it's on his side, almost like Saunders, but Saunders does it in like eight minutes. Rapid <laughs> <laughs> <Lapid> version. <laughs> uh, Lisa, what would you like to throw in for your ingredient? Oh, the soundtrack. I think this is one mm-hmm. of the best soundtracks across the entire franchise. I think John Barry um, did a really great job. It's incredibly powerful. I love the use of brass. Uh, Bond seems so heroic because of the type of, of music that is there. There's mm-hmm. also a beautiful romantic score. Overall, when I've taught you know Bond music as a lesson, I usually play snippets from this score just because I find it so incredibly powerful. And it's one of the few scores that I've actually like when we had, you know, iPods and stuff like that, it was one of the ones that I had purchased and I would just listen to it on on its own. I don't think that it's loud enough in the movie if I'm going to put a critique in there. There's mm. times when I wish that it was a little bit more pronounced the way that you get it when you just listen to the to the soundtrack separately. But I have no complaints about just the the substance of of the music. And as we know, music defines the world of Bond. It defines how we interact with his character, how we read him. Um, and it has all the classical elements of a Bond soundtrack. And three songs. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. the fact that they that they are able to intercut uh into the actual score the the pop songs that they got. Yes. Yeah. Not just one, but like <laughs> several. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a bad one to go out on, was it, for Barry? Um, no, I think, no. I think musically, I think, I can't remember if it was Warren or something. This is a relatively short soundtrack in terms of like the original components. There's a lot of repetition in it. Um, but I absolutely love it too, Lisa. I think there's yeah. some absolutely cracking tracks in there, especially <laughs> to me, my favorite part of the soundtrack is um, the, the fight aboard the the plane when they're dangling yes. out the back. It's just, just really that accentuates that action so well. Um, yep. 100% agree. I, I used to think, and I'm not sure if I still do, that this theme song 
was from Bond's point of view. Mm. Like, first mm. person. That's how I read that When I first heard it, that's how I read it. That's how I understood it. I, I think I agree with you, Mark. I think that's how I think about it, too. But there's a lot of ambiguity, right? Yeah. But the theme song in itself went through its own torturous process of um, <laughs> Barry not aha uh-huh, not taking on uh, Barry's suggestions and then Barry doing them anyway and then they like, later liked them mm-hmm. and, all that and I love the integration of the melody right yeah and and the way that it's it's it sounds one way in the the credit sequence of 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 mm. the movie and then the way that they use the brass to just take those notes and they make them sound he makes them sound more more heroic um, I just love the fact that you, you can have the same melody that does different things, um, different styles, different meanings for different purposes. I just, I'm a huge fan. I think it's brilliant what, yeah, what Barry did. I mean, it's almost like with a Broadway musical where you have a, 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 a theme, a musical theme, and yeah. then you develop it throughout the course yeah. of the show and uh, you play with it and it does something different in each scene. Yeah. And, and, and Barry did that better than most. I wonder if Barry and Aha had a got on in the beginning, whether we would have had the Pretenders doing two other tracks. Mm. Mm. Or did he good. bring the Did he bring them in to pad the score out with some different music? Because um, where is everybody gone is just as a present in the in, yes, the, yeah. in the film as the title song. I tend to think of it more actually. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. you contrast that to the relationship that uh, they seem to have on the positive relationship that they seem to have on No Time to Die with Hans Zimmer, Billy Eilish, and her brother. When you right. when you heard those series of interviews when the, when they went around together promoting the film and then the awards, there there, there seemed to be a, a genuine admiration and respect for the differences. There's such different musical talents, obviously, right. but they, they, they both seem to really genuinely appreciate what the other, what the other brought to it. Yeah. I, in the beginning of that, it did feel like Hans Zimmer was crashing the cool kids party a little bit to mm-hmm. me. <laughs> like, here's the awkward uncle sitting on the end of the couch. Um, <laughs> but I think over, over time that maybe developed. Uh, yeah. So, uh, underappreciated elements, um, what thing, big or very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch The Living Daylights? Um, this goes, and this is a, a segue from kind of from the balloon popping, but this has to do with Dalton. Um, one of the things that I appreciate appreciate about Dalton is his commitment to the role and his willingness to put himself at personal risk. And I'm thinking of the pre-credit sequence. <laughs> Yep. in Gibraltar and with him hanging off of the top of that vehicle. Now I know that there you can intercut stunt people here and there, but like he's hanging off the vehicle, right? It's right. not the the safest thing for him to be doing. And, you know, for an actor to come in and be that committed and to want to push himself and to try and to give us that really authentic sense of 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 performance, I thought it was really notable and knowledge like I, noteworthy. Right. Every time I watch it, I'm like, dang, he's really doing that. <laughs> and you know, this really does predate you know Tom Cruise doing these types of things, right? Mm-hmm. The guarantee, the real. 
um, that gets emphasized. You know, Tom Cruise is doing it. Jackie Chan made a whole career of doing it with his stunt reels at the end of him failing stunts, right? Because then, then we watch Jackie Chan in the movies and we think, oh my gosh, he's a real, a real star. And I think Timothy Dalton just has this commitment to authenticity and really trying to embody all of the characters that he plays. Um, I find him to be just like a really solid actor and performer. And I have a lot of respect for him for jumping in into this role, as as was mentioned before. It might not have been our first choice, but let, let's be honest. We've all dated other people, right? Probably <laughs> 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 not our first choices either, right? Doesn't mean the first choice was the right fit, right? But with all of this publicity, all of this attention just kind of comes in, steps in, and just does his thing. And there's just moments here and there, and I think I already mentioned the cello sequence, where I'm like, you're doing your thing, and you're committing to to this role and to the action-oriented parts, and I have mad respect for him for doing that. I have mad respect for the way that he forward somersaults off the roof of that boat in the beginning and then picks up the phone. (laughs) Yeah! Yes! yes, It's him! And I'm like, that's real smooth! Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really buy his physicality all the way yep. through it. Just the way he moves, he cold cocks somebody. Uh, maybe it's in the hotel room. I can't remember, but it looked. It, it just looks so violent, it, mm-hmm. and, and, and he's believable when he, when he fights yeah. and moves. There's an element of of realness to it where you're you. It doesn't feel like a like a staged fight it feels like you're actually watching a fight when he's when he's yeah. you know doing it i don't know any other uh, any other of the bond actors would have agreed to have cargo netting pull his face out of shape mm. like mm-hmm. that during the fight where his nose mm-hmm. is off to one side his mouth's off the other side <laughs> and yeah. that was you know that was real <laughs> real stress on those ropes and he was like yeah let's go for it <laughs> Who is the what? What is the hench person? The guy who drinks milk? Necros. Like, yeah. Necro. So my problem. I don't with know. Him, if he, I don't know if he drinks it, but he definitely sells it. He sells it. The milk <laughs> guy. My problem with him in his physical por- performance it had to do with his kicks in the kitchen. I just watch it back. Is he a dancer in real life? Because just the extension and the way that he was kicking, I'm like, that doesn't look like a like a like a like a kick that a fighter would do. Whereas <laughs> I don't have any of those questions when Dalton's doing any of his physical components. And maybe this guy's just really tall and 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 um has just really long legs. But I watch and I'm like, these kicks, the, the kicks I liken to the Lazenby up uppercuts that are so overly dramatic that it's like that's not a really good use of you know your body and like logistics of how you're supposed to fight um but it was i i sort of likened it to that and that was something you know well, i've always had issues he, with he Lisa, you, you're the, yeah he was yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. i just looked on wikipedia uh spent the early part of his life dancing before turning to yeah see i called it you can tell he <laughs> it was it was a dancer's kick rather than like you know a martial artist kick or a fighter's kick but you know what's you know there's that that scene that you just referenced in the kitchen which is it, I, I, it's it's a it's a very effective fight scene, it, yeah. But it, it's funny in that you don't need it for the film. You don't need it to establish the character, no. and it's like no. it's not. It, maybe it's two minutes long, but and it, and it's well, very well done. Uh, but it's not about any major character, and, and you could lose it. My, we had a big debate about this. I think in a previous episode where it was like Bond can't be seen to lose. Um, so they had to get him out of there. 
for the scene to work. Mm. So he drives off, right? And that leaves Necros and Green Four, right, to fight in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> but we were, we were kind of brainstorming. It's like, well, how would you fix that sequence where it's still relevant to have it in there? And the, I think the conclusion we came to was like Bond could have been Bond could have been cho- made to choose between chasing Necros off or getting M to safety, and he could have got M to safety. And that's how you fix that sequence and keep Bond relevant in it. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's you could take it out there. Other than developing Necros as a threat later in the film, it serves no purpose. And it's weird because, you know, here's my my days teaching uh, female heroism in Hollywood. Kitchen fight sequences when it comes to women involved in action actually usually have a lot of symbolic meaning. This is um, oftentimes where a spy usually fights another woman spy and and she proves her value worth and skill set and that's when the kitchen doesn't is not necessarily seen as say a safe domestic place but you see the violence that is possible through the weaponry that is there the dangers that exist you know it's a small space and so you might have sort of small weapons you're crashing into things everything can be used to hit you or impale you and it's supposed to be a scene where a woman can prove and sort of move beyond these like domestic ideas of who women, quote unquote, should be um, and 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 pushing forward this this notion that women can be spies as well. And so you can think about Kill Bill. You can think about Spy Has One. You can think about Long Kiss Goodnight. And I could just yeah, keep going through. Yeah. The, it's, it's a trope that's used for women. And so when I do watch this. I have embedded in me, like the scene has to have meaning because it's in a kitchen. And I did question, you know, what is the meaning of this? It did show some brutality, like there's danger, the sizzling of skin, but it didn't have the same punch, you know, like I'm going to throw, you know, flour in your face because there wasn't an overarching narrative. I wasn't connected to the people that were fighting at all. Like I didn't have any skin in the game. I didn't care for the security person. And this is a a hench person that we're just kind of meeting. And so, yeah, I really did question that scene when Bond is not involved in it or and 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 especially given my readings of previous scenes or comparable scenes when these scenes can mean so much to the actors and the characters involved. Great fight, but maybe a wasted opportunity narratively. Yes. I mean, Bond's got to be pretty pissed when he finds out because he's driven all the way from London to this safe house to deliver a basket of caviar. And then he's shooed out the building and go back. And he's there for like all of three minutes. And then Mm -hmm. he gets back to base and he realizes the place got blown up. I hate when that happens. (laughs) With the cost of gas these days? I'd be pissed off. (laughs) I drove for what? He was a delivery driver, effectively. Benamok, uh, underappreciated element. Uh, two two things. Uh, one, uh, I think that this is the 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 last Bond film of an era that began with Doctor No. I feel like Doctor No, mm-hmm. The Living Daylights, are one kind of Bond film, and I know that Dalton made a second. Bond film, but I really feel like that is the beginning of a new era, and I've always sort of thought of this as the as as the perfect end to a classic Bond film. Classic, uh, not just meaning good, which which although I love it, but classic meaning using all the elements that we think of in the way that we think of them. Right. I think after this film, it's just different. And then mm. the other point. Uh, 
is another unappreciated element is just John Glenn and his second unit uh, director, Arthur Wooster, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, the way that these guys construct action and put little fragments of film together to 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 effectively tell to show these chase these action sequences where the first unit might not even be involved with for for the with the the snow bit where where in the, where in the bed crush I guess um, is that was mostly shot with second unit and the the main actors just came for like two or three days and and they and, and inserted them for for their shots. But that whole sequence w- 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 was shot with the second unit, and and, and it's incredible. Just little m- moments of film. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ben, you're up last for underappreciated. Oh, this is tough because everything has sort of been touched on. Um, I was also going to mention too uh, to sort of uh, remark on what Mark was saying. This is it, as far as this being the last of a certain type of Bond movie. Um, this is the last one where you get like the projection titles. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, but as far as underappreciated element, um, <laughs> even though this has been talked a- about a lot is, is the score. Um, cause yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, John Barry just absolutely crushes it. I mean, this is the one that I listen to in my car all the time mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, uh, I do think, uh, where is everybody gone is maybe a better song than, than Aha's title song, but, but regardless, um, just the actual score itself, the fact that, um, Barry was able to weave in both songs in a way that um, you know, just felt so natural. And, and even if it is sort of repetitive it's it's sort of that repetitive in a good way because you're you know you've you've got all these catchy uh melodies in there and you've got all this i don't know he just he just hits all the right things in this and i i can't say enough about how much music influences this Mm. movie i I literally the moment i i think about the living daylights i can i think about like where's everybody gone and so i guess that would be it um Oh, I will mention, <laughs> even though you guys kind of like tore it to pieces, I, I actually, I actually love the fight in the kitchen. <laughs> I do. There's just, there's like a 12 year old boy in me that, that just loves how visceral and brutal that, that right. fight is depicted. <laughs> it's choreographed beautifully. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even if it's totally meaningless. <laughs> well, it's also an example of using the, the 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 elements in the environment as part of the fight and making it specific to that location. And you see that in the man with the golden gun. There's a fight where he takes you know hairspray or something and, and uses that mm-hmm. when he's getting the bullet. Or in, in the train, Bond uses the lamp to get Jaws and Spy Love Me. And mm-hmm. here, you know, it's it's all kitchen stuff using as weapons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do technically on my sheet have under underappreciated, even though I knocked the narrative component of it, kitchen fight, particularly brutal. <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> it was on my radar as well, just as being something that was standout and, and noteworthy, 
um, even though it might, in my opinion, be a little bit narratively misplaced. But again, innovative for what we typically get um, as a fight sequence. So I, I like it when you use your resource. Look, I love me a good fight sequence. And I love it when you use the resources and the different levels and things at your disposal. There's a level of creativity that can really help to elevate a fight sequence where it's just like two people hitting each other. Mm, I could watch boxing and that's the reason why I don't watch boxing. It's just two people hitting, Mm. like beating each other up and giving each other concussions, right? It's really the creativity that can go in these moments. And I like it when there's attempts that are made for for Bond Mm. or other characters to be resourceful. I'm not a stunt arranger, but I imagine if I was a stunt arranger and somebody came to me and said, right, you got to, it's, we're having a fight in the kitchen. I'd be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's my time. Just, Let's right. do this. <laughs> I got Which knives. One? I got plates. I got pots. <laughs> Electric turkey carver. Right? <laughs> that was the brutal thing though. It's not even like, was- I'm going to stab you. It's like, I'm going to carve you up. Yeah. <laughs> going to make yeah. deli meat out of you <laughs> <laughs> okay trivia um would you like to share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting i have one i'll go to, apparently i'm going first today so um it's about marion diabo who plays cara malobi uh she grew up in france so her background uh she's i believe fluent in french uh and so for the french release she actually dubbed the french herself oh. um, of her own character but she also maintained dubbed the french but also maintained the accent of the character while doing it huh nice wow <laughs> which i thought is like really fascinating um a very fascinating tidbit and point because when you, you for me i don't i don't think she gets enough attention for the role that she plays in a general sense just because her character is uh, that she plays is not the most physically empowered woman right, right? you know you think about you know waylin you think about other women who've played really central roles where they're empowered and they have this core component. Um, She reminds me of being what an average person drawn into a scandal would be, right? Someone who's drawn in, manipulated. She's accidentally in a Bond movie. Yeah. Like, it's just like, holy crap, I find myself self here. And let me tell you, if, if that was me, I wouldn't be the Michelle Yeoh person. I would be the Marion Diablo person. Diablo person. And I don't think she gets enough credit for having us fall in love with her as Dalton's bond falls in love with her. And I think she's somebody who is the heart of this film. She's there for the the majority of the film. And I love hearing about her further investment in this character in the way of dubbing because who was I talking to today? Were we talking about before disembodied voices? I don't know who who is talking to, but, um, you know, this notion of when you dub, it's a disembodied voice. And sometimes the actors that you see and the actors that you hear, there is no connection between the the two of them. And if you ever watch Netflix international stuff back to back, it's the same voice for different people. And it's so incredibly confusing. And there is this high level of authenticity when an actor can dub their own voice, whether it's for obviously their own film, right? You know, Um, but also in different language markets. So I think it's fascinating. And I think Mary Dabo is great. I have a little um, Dabo trivia, which is she posted Playboy when this film came out, holding a white cat. And yep. that white cat was the grand kitty of the cat from the Ewan Live Twice crater. 
Oh my god! Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was the same animal handler's lineage of cats. Wow! Or, the, or so they'll have you think. Right. <laughs> That's kind of amazing, though. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the trivia I had it, it just kind of goes back to music. Um, originally, the uh, the Pet Shop Boys were actually asked to compose mm. yeah. the uh, soundtrack, um, but they backed down. <laughs> When they learned that they couldn't provide um, a complete soundtrack, just just the opening theme song, um, but that would have been quite the. Uh, <laughs> I mean, wild! That would have been. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so, sure if I'd go for that, but I'd be interested. So they wanted to score the whole film. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that would make it my favorite soundtrack <laughs> after, <laughs> after our conversation. You know, I think John Barry was definitely yeah. the right pick and he knocked it out of the park. So Yeah, I'm pretty good with this one. Yeah, like I think yeah. I think I'm good with this decision. Yeah. It's like the yeah. Clapton thing. Is, right. Is it a theme song or is it mu- is it incidental music? Right. Mm-hmm. Or is it real? And <laughs> some people are asking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you got for us, Matt? I have a few uh, minor ones. Uh, for uh, for the credits, AHA have their their AHA font on the credit. Their, mm. their weird uh-huh. font that they use is on the credit as opposed to just saying their the band's name. Uh, mm. To the when when Bond is trying to he's he's going he's working with Q and he's trying to he's going through uh, assassins. There is an assassin who uses their hands and thighs as lethal right. weapons. That of, that of yes. course plays a part in Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. Uh, the this is the this is the film where there was a flying carpet that was deleted, basically because it was shot poorly. But right. I also think that it was good that it wasn't included for a couple of reasons, including because I think that would have mitigated mitigated the cello. Uh, that if if Bond is always riding or sliding on weird things, it's like, do it once (laughs) per movie, otherwise it's this weird fetish. Right, (laughs) right. Um, And then then finally, um, this, I think, is an example of the filmmakers reusing a joke and doing it better, but not a callback. Uh, In From uh, this is, in From Russia With Love, from Russia with Love, uh, you know, he, he's with Sylvia and she's saying, uh, let's, you know, let's spend a little more time. He calls to his office and he says, er, mm-hmm. make that an hour and a half. Actually, the script says, er, make that an hour and a half. He says, uh, make it an hour and a half. Um, and then in, 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 in Daylights, uh, he says, better make that too. And I right. think that's a better line, er, make that an hour and a half or better make that too. It's they, yeah. they, he, they improved themselves. An hour and a half is very specific. Yes, <laughs> thirty-seven minutes. <laughs> Has this man been timing himself? <laughs> um, so my bit of trivia was that the parrot in the kitchen <clears throat> is the same parrot that's in Fiora's only. Oh. oh, and that same parrot's called Chrome, and he was owned by Diana Rick. Oh. oh, wow! You have a lot of what? animal trivia today. That I was a trivia. very good trivia. Right? 
Wow. Point, yeah. Wow. Don't know where he is now because they live for a hundred years sometimes, right? Um, oh my God. But apparently she gave him up um, probably before the film was made, but it was, uh, yeah, he's the same, same parent. Look at that so ball he's still, I'm surprised he's like, same girls? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't give him any lines in this film, did they? No. All righty. Um, okay, final verdict. Disclaimer, there are no bad Bond films, right? Um, but there are some that we watch more than others. So for the Living Daylights, does it make your top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier cut? Who wants to go first? I will. I'm just on a roll today. It is top tier for me. You know, I really do love this film. Um, when I watch this film, I know I've said this before, to me, it is the best amalgamation of every Bond Every sort of the, the typical elements, the typical performances that you would get across all of the actors' tenures, I feel like it's all wrapped up, not only in Dalton's Bond, but in this film in particular. And and to one of Mark's points, I do love, and it's like 30 seconds when they're going through all of the women assassins and all of their backgrounds, I wish there was more of that. I found that absolutely fascinating. And it's a blink and you'll miss it moment. But there's all these little nuggets in in this particular film. I find it entirely entertaining. I find the romance to be one of the few that's actually believable. Soundtrack is solid. And there's a lot that we've been able to talk about um, in a very positive light. So for all of these reasons, it is you know definitely high on my list, top tier. I absolutely agree. I, I think this is a top tier bond. We're just ditto to it. <laughs> <laughs> what she said. Yeah. Well, I'm in agreement as well. I think it's absolutely <laughs> top tier. I, much, much to the dismay of my uh, CIC co-host, actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just think that uh, Dalton just crushes it in in his first outing. Just really knows what the assignment is and um and just and just makes the role his and and gives it something so much uh, you know just it just gave it such a a new heavy um you know believable bond um the soundtrack is amazing um it you know i didn't even get into the fact that um i probably should have put as my uh, as my underappreciated element, uh, Q in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I love him in in this movie. He's fantastic in this movie, and one of those carry-ons that really helps strengthen the movie as well. Just to to have him in there, because um, it can't be underappreciated. You can't appreciate a ghetto blaster anymore. Than- <laughs> <laughs> but but it's a missed opportunity. They should have called it a boombox, and I would have laughed my ass off. Like when he said it's a ghetto blaster, I'm like, it's a boombox. What are you doing? This was the perfect moment. <laughs> and also his pronunciation of explosive teddy bear. I hear that. <laughs> yeah. I hear that everywhere. I <laughs> Excellent. So if you listen to this contemporaneously, the Living Daylights is back on the big screen in the UK this week. That's part of the 60th anniversary re-releases. Um, you've had three people out of three say, go see it, right? Um, mm-hmm. On the big screen. Mm-hmm. I'd like to leave you with this if you're listening. Um, in the opening sequence, when we first see Bond's face as he turns to camera, windswept um, <laughs> in Gibraltar, 
that was the last shot that Timothy Dalton filmed of this film. It was a oh, pickup. Wow. Shot. It was a pickup shot done at Pinewood with a fake background and a wind machine. Wait, <laughs> again? The, the, it was the a pickup shot. Intro? The Bond intro. Yeah, his face turned to camera was a pickup shot done at Pinewood oh, okay. with a backdrop and a wind machine. Um, oh. And I think that's great that they did it that way because to me that's the defining moment of him as Bond in this film Absolutely. is that shot. And yeah. to, have done it, to have done it last when he's had the whole film to find himself, give his performance, I think he, it's just perfect. That um, is my favorite shot in, in, in any Bond movie is, is Dalton's introduction. It says right. everything you need to know mm-hmm. about the character. And, it, and I, wrote, I asked John Glenn about it, about that shot, because mm. it wasn't in the that, – that, 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 uh, It wasn't in the storyboards. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't in the storyboards. It wasn't in that 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 rough cut that went around before. Mm-hmm. But it's my favorite. It's my favorite shot in all of Bond. It's great, and um, I think it makes nearly all of the highlight reels right for the Bond clip fests that they do. Um, yep. Yeah, it's so, yeah. perfect. So he was Bond at that point. He'd done it. He'd finished his assignment and um, captured that perfect moment. Thank you very much, Dr. Lisa, Ben, and Mark, and join us next week for probably a heated debate about license to kill (laughs) (laughs) see you then bye